0: Uh, We are finishing out the 167 series today. It's been, I think, the best way to start 2020. I don't know if you agree with me, but I've loved this series as we're talking about how this hour together propels us into the other 167 hours of our week. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like to go from here and be faces of grace and have faces of grace in our life. And so faces of grace is the title of this sermon. We're getting to the title of the sermon like a minute in. So we're just getting straight to business because we got group launch. We're not messing around. Don't distract me. No jokes. No screwing around, okay? We're getting into this. Uh, the, The title is Faces of Grace for, like, YouTube and podcast purposes. If I'm just giving a title for us in the room, my title for this would just be get in a group. And I'm not hiding the fact that my motivation, what I want to happen today is for you to find family in this church. And the primary way to do that is by getting in a group. And so I kind of feel like I'm just throwing different anecdotes and ideas and things out today and hoping that something sticks for each person in here to say, you know what? I'm going to find family here. I'm going to get in a group. I'm going to be a part of what God is doing and go deep in relationships and put some faces of grace around me in my life. There's people that walk in here, and I know some of you are here today. If you were honest about how you feel in life right now, you feel alone. You feel isolated. Loneliness is a familiar friend for you. And it may seem random or insignificant that you're at a church service today here, but it's not. You're in this place today because God does not want you to be alone. He does not intend for you to live this life all on your own. You're in this place today to find family because you need family. But I also want to say to you, this family needs you. You have something unique that God has crafted you with that this family needs. And so you are in this place today for a purpose and for a reason. And I'm passionate, speaking from passion today about groups, because walking into a group over 11 years ago saved my life. And I know that's a really dramatic thing to say, and what's more dramatic to me is thinking about what my life would look like today had I not walked into that group and then kept going back. So some of you know kind of the backstory of Doug Ryan and I, how we know each other, and how we got here to get to be a part of this church family. But we have a lot of new people around, so I want to give you a little abbreviated version of the story. We all went to college together. If you ask Doug, how how do you guys know each other? He always always says, oh, uh, we all went to college together, which is true, and him and Ryan also shared bunk beds until they were like 18 and 16. They have the same parents, grew up in the same house. They're actually brothers, but when you ask Doug, it's like, oh, we're all college buddies. Like, Okay, Ryan's your college buddy, great. So we met, uh, became friends in college. I actually had gone to high school with Doug And we were running into each other in Boulder once we were in college, and it seemed kind of just random and coincidental. If you had told us at the gym when we ran into each other, you guys are going to plan a church together someday, we would have laughed and thought you were crazy. So we're running into each other, and we both got invited separately to a college ministry at a time in our lives when we didn't have much to do with God, but were very curious about life, the big questions and who he was, and if there was a place for that for us, and uh, so we saw each other at this college ministry, and it was kind of one of those, like, oh, I didn't know you went here. Oh, no, I don't go here. I just, my friend invited me. I just came because they're a Christian. Don't, don't judge me. I don't, I don't even think this is cool kind of conversation. But both of us were desperately trying to find something, fulfillment, something speaking to our soul, drawing us to this place. And so we simultaneously got invited, Doug, Ryan, and I, by different, uh, in different ways to be in a group. There was these two guys, seniors in our college ministry named Sam and Brandon, who had gotten kind of a, a call out. It's time to step up and lead. Some of you have recently had that and felt like, hey, it's time that I stand up and lead some other people, and thank you for doing that on behalf of people like me, whose lives were changed dramatically because of those two guys. And so we got invited to this group. Fast forward a couple of weeks, the three of us are in the car driving there, kind of dreading it. And I had all the same excuses and questions that you might have right now about getting in a group and being a part of a church family. Well, what if it's boring? I don't really want to waste time. What if I don't like the leaders? Or what if there's that person in the group who always makes everything about themselves and they just talk all the time? Like, I have friends. I don't need some church to assign me some. Like, there's people I go to parties with, and I, I, know, I know people. I don't, I don't really need this. So we were all kind of harping on it in the car together and made our infamous party pact that we always love to emphasize in this story because it paints a picture of where we were at. We said, no matter what these Christian guys say, we're never going to stop partying. We're not going to let these Christian guys keep us down. And what I was really masking in that party pact was that my, my fears when it came to engaging in a group like that were much more about me than about what the group would look like. My fears were, What if they actually get to know me? What if they know some of the things I've done? What if they know what I'm doing right now? What if they really know the mess of my life? There's no way these Christian guys are going to want me in their group. I figured that anybody who took faith seriously would not take me seriously at all. And so I was afraid. And I knew if there was a list of rules when I walk in that they hand me, I'm not going to pass. I'm not going to be able to stay. And 11 years later, that group has dramatically changed my life because we walked into some guys saying, hey, we need Jesus. We need a home base. You might feel alone. You might feel lost. You might feel broken. This can be the one safe space, some faces of grace in your life. What's going on? What's happening in your life right now? And and I want to emphasize this when it comes, like you can hear that story and be like, well, lightning struck and you found the perfect group and you guys have this cool story. We committed to keep going. We made the drive. We showed up week after week. And if you looked at the roster of our group and the difference of personalities, you'd laugh. Like, how are you guys all best friends? Because we are all so different. Different ideas. We had arguments, disagreements, frustration, all the dynamics that come with a group. But we just believed that there was something bigger that we were all growing in together, striving for together, so we kept after it. My memories of that group aren't so much of the times that we had a disagreement or something got uncomfortable. The things I remember are like a specific night I remember walking into that group and literally breaking down in front of them, crying in front of 10 guys. I can't figure out how to be this new creation that I so desperately want to be because I'm so prone to wander. I'm so prone to the life I've been living and I, I just don't think I can do this. Right in this exact same time, a dark time in my life, There was a friend who told me that another guy in the college ministry that I didn't know that well, he had said to them, you know, I think it's really funny how your friend Ethan pretends to be a good person. And that struck like to the core of what I already believed about myself. I already knew how messed up I was and I thought maybe he's right. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing here. It reminds me a lot of when Paul says the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those I do. It's so frustrating. I can't get this behavior modification thing figured out. I don't belong here. Maybe I just shouldn't be part of a church family. I just can't cut it. And if I'm honest, in that time period of my life, had I been walking my faith journey alone, I probably would have thrown in the towel and just stopped. The problem was I couldn't give up on myself because those guys wouldn't give up on me. They would pick me back up and say, hey, we're going to keep going. So what they said in response to what that guy said about me, I can't say in church. Those guys had my back even when everyone else said, not that guy. He's too broken. He's too messed up. Too imperfect. Ecclesiastes 4 9 through 10 says, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You need friends that will walk into a fire with you, who will walk through it with you, who will throw you over their shoulder when you can't carry it yourself. And those guys know very well how heavy I am to carry. They've carried me many times. You need those people. I want that for you, your story, your faces of grace, your people that push you with the grace of Jesus, that push you to become something that you would never believe, somebody that that could actually be a face of grace themselves. And so if you're in here right now, like, yeah, you partied in college and lived that whole life. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've been through. I don't. You're right. But I can tell you this, if you're in here right now and you feel, I'm too broken for a church family. I'm too broken for a group. I'm too messed up. My story has has got too many bumps in the road. Let me just say, if that's you, welcome to Red Rocks Church. Welcome to this family. Join us. You belong here. You're one of us. A bunch of imperfect people pursuing a perfect God together. And you need family, but we need you. We need you here. God crafted you uniquely. We need you here. So, you might be thinking, okay, cool, man, you're just trying to get us to sign up for groups. Don't take it from me, then. Take it from God. Genesis 2.18, God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for man to be alone. This is Genesis 2. So, the fall hasn't happened yet. Everything's perfect. Harmony, communion, beautiful, peace, shalom with God. And yet, God looks at Adam and says, no, he needs A face in front of him. He needs one of his own kind. He needs community. It's not good for him to be alone. God does not want you to be alone. And if right now you feel isolated, that's not from him. There is an enemy of your soul who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And his tactic is to strike at your relationships. Look at Genesis 3.1, the intro to the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Here's what that sounds like to me. He's pinned Eve in a one-on-one conversation. And a side note, if anyone ever tries to turn this story into something sexist, just put your AirPods in and just walk away from them. Adam shows up, and he's no help, right? And in an instant, she's been isolated. Her relationship questioned, and before they know it, The vertical relationship with God fractured. Their horizontal relationship with each other fractured. The enemy's tactic is to use isolation to fracture your relationships. Probably the second most famous story of a human being falling, King David. David and Bathsheba. Okay, let's read the story, the intro to the story. 2 Samuel 11.1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And we know from there, or if you don't, David commits adultery and has the woman's husband murdered, his great fall. The intro to that story, all his guys, everyone he stood next to, everyone he fought alongside, they're all fighting together and he's isolated by himself and has his great fall. The tactic of the enemy to destroy relationships through isolation. And his son Solomon learned something from it because he writes in Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So this is, this is an intense topic, isolation, but I want to sit here for a second and talk about this. I was studying solitary confinement, which is essentially isolation being used as a means of punishment and torture. Uh, Former Senator John McCain was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and he experienced solitary confinement and here's what he said about it. It crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. Now, while he was imprisoned, he was beaten regularly, denied adequate medical treatment for two broken arms, a broken leg, had chronic dysentery, and was tortured to the point that they broke his arm again. And he said, of all of that, solitary confinement crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment. No physical harm, just being without other human beings. They did a study after Vietnam on 150 other soldiers who had been imprisoned, many of whom treated way worse than John McCain. And the report concluded that they found social isolation to be as torturous and agonizing if not more than any physical abuse that the soldiers had suffered. In 1992, there was a study on the brains of 57 prisoners of war who had been released in Yugoslavia, and that concluded without sustained social interaction, the human brain may become as impaired as one that has incurred a traumatic injury, physically impaired because of isolation. The effects of isolation, the common ones, chronic apathy, becoming lethargic, irrational anger, depression, despair, to the points of human beings literally becoming catatonic and losing humanity. And I understand that this is a very extreme example of isolation that we in this room are not facing. But what haunts me is that I see those effects prevalent all through our culture and society right now. Everything I just listed, the effects of isolation, We're all dealing with those very things. We hear it all the time. We're the most connected society in history and the loneliest at the same time. There's a psychologist who's studying loneliness in the digital age, and he he boiled down three categories of questions as he's sitting with people to see if isolation and loneliness is a true problem that they're dealing with, and they're very simple. When it comes to the intimate, do you have a connection with at least one person who offers you emotional support? relational do you have supportive friends and family for instance could you call on someone in a moment to drive you to the airport which uber figured out so when your friend asked you to drive them at 5 a.m it's like i'd rather just give you 20 bucks man get an uber so maybe there's a better question to ask for that but do you have supportive family and friends people that would help you at a moment's notice collectively do you feel connected to a larger culture or your community and a lot of you would probably be able to say yes to a lot of those things because you've found family in this church. And some of you and a lot of people out there, there's a lot of no's to those questions. Do you have followers on social media? Yep. Does everybody know what you had for breakfast yesterday? Oh, yeah, I posted that. Everybody know how good you look in that selfie? You you use that filter strategically to make yourself look as good as possible? Oh, yeah, they know that. Do you have emotional support? No. Do you have somebody you could call and talk about that really deep, dark place in your life? No. Do you have faces of grace in your life? No. And it's intense for me, and I'm intense about this, because I'm terrified of what the effects of isolation are doing to your soul that you may not even realize, right? Because we live in a false sense of community in the digital age. We have constant connection and interaction. We see people throwing stuff like painful real stuff just out onto social media, hoping someone will come back, some face of grace. But all they get back is comments, which can't take the place of a real authentic relationship. We have this false sense of community. There's a whole difference between connection and community. And so let me have an interlude real quick, because I think some of the introverts in here are panicking. They're like, oh, no. People drain me. All the extroverts are like, preach it, fellow extrovert. Let's go. More people. Get more people around. It's easy. Just have some fun. Go to some parties. There's a difference between solitude and isolation, and we have to draw that distinction. So here's two quotes. There is a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are a world apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Another one, loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. So to the extroverts, the people that are like, yeah, I just surround myself with people. There's so much noise that I don't ever have to think about the deep stuff. I don't have to worry about that. I'm one of you. The answer isn't having more people around you. It's a question of who has the real estate in your life? Who are you listening to? Who are the faces that are steering your future, because you need solitude, and we were prone to avoid it. So Rich Wilkerson, a pastor, he was talking about community, and he said, show me your five best friends, and I will prophesy the next five years of your life. And then he laughed and said, and I'm not a prophet. It's just not rocket science. You've heard somebody say, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. And it's hard as as relational people. Sometimes we'll just accept something it's just easier, it just feels a little better, a little more convenient to at least have a warm body next to me than to have to actually dive into the real stuff that's going on in here, than to actually have to fight for the goodness and the life that God wants for me. It's sometimes just easier to have just somebody around, people around. But if, but if the people in your life are, are leaving you in the exact same place or pulling you away, then, then are you really experiencing God's intention when he said it's not good for man to be alone? And are you willing to go to a place with your vertical relationship in solitude? Because the reality, even if you're an extrovert, is that time your vertical relationship with God should then be pushing you into healthy, horizontal relationships with people. And if you're surrounded by people, those faces close to you, those horizontal relationships, those should be pushing you to a healthy, vertical relationship with God. For the introverts in the room, you're like, man, give me solitude all day long. People are draining. They take my energy. That's how you're geared. There's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't give you a license to not engage in real relationships. It doesn't give you an out because, like I said, your vertical relationship, that time in solitude should then propel you to go be a face of grace, to go into those horizontal relationships with other human beings. And there's some people in this room that maybe it's not about your personality type, You've experienced pain, hurt, rejection, betrayal, relationships at the root of it. And you've decided, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going back to letting people into my life. Nobody's getting past the surface anymore. I can just do this on my own. I'm just going to do this by myself. You've taken on the lone wolf mentality. And so I did some, some research about lone wolves. And what happens is there's a conflict of some kind. There's an external, maybe the, the pack treating the wolf a certain way, and so they decide, forget you, I'm leaving, or an internal decision of just like, I don't want to deal with these dynamics. The wolf, for whatever reason, goes off on their own. They leave the pack, and what happens is they survive for much shorter of a time on their own even than they would have in a dysfunctional pack. And eventually, lone wolves stop howling. They don't want to be detected. They don't want to have to interact with other wolves anymore, so they just stop communicating altogether. They've lost their sense of communication. They're in complete isolation. And so there's this famous story of a lone wolf, for people that read about lone wolves, I guess. I'm sure none of you have heard it, but there was a lone wolf in Finland that made his way into Sweden. And in the area of Sweden that he was in, uh, the wolf population was basically dying out. This last remaining pack had been forced to inbreed, they were dwindling, and for whatever reason, this lone wolf decided to engage with the pack and became a part of it. He decided to go back into relationship, and they watched that this lone wolf actually mixed up the gene pool and brought a resurgence to the wolf population in that region of Sweden. You're like, cool, obscure metaphor there. There's a a wolf and some puppies now, and this is a good story about getting in a group There's some of you in this room that you've taken on the lone wolf mentality, and I just want to say to you, not only do you need family, but you have resurgence in life that you need to bring to a family, just like that wolf. You have something to offer. You have something to mix things up and bring a resurgence into the lives of other people where they may be dying out. So I'll conclude the interlude with this. From a psychological perspective, neurologist studying your brain chemistry It has been determined that the only way to get healing from relationship wounds is in relationship. The very thing, it seems like so backwards, the very thing that hurt me, the very thing that I vowed to never do again, that's the only way for you to find healing. Is through faces of grace, people who love you with the grace of Jesus. It's the only way to heal from those relationship wounds. That's science catching up to what God said in the beginning it's not good for man to be alone. You need somebody in your corner. you got to have somebody in your corner. That term comes from boxing. One more cool anecdote. Boxing. Been going on all through history. Like, probably since the fall of man, because guys just love to fight each other, right? They can trace it back to, like, ancient Egypt. And they're, they would fight in a ring. And then in the 1830s in London, they decided to make it a square that they would fight in. And so the term used to be that every fighter had a second... And then when they changed it to the ring, they started calling them corner men. And you've seen them in a fight. They're the guy who pops in, bandages the fighter, gives him some water, hypes him up. He's got the little hype crew down on the ground, too, with the corner men. And they're all just cheering him on, like, keep going, keep punching him. They're not really, like, coaching at that point. It's not, like, tactical fighting advice. They're just yelling as loud as they can to try to urge their fighter on. And that's been how combat sports have been going forever, Here's a quote, an old-school quote, about the role of the corner man. In combat sports, a corner man or second is a coach or trainer assisting a fighter during a bout. In the break, they are permitted to enter the ring and minister to their fighter. From a fighting perspective, to minister to their fighter. And every day you wake up and you step into a ring. You have an enemy of your soul who wants to kill, steal, and destroy and wants to fracture your relationships. And you step into that ring, and you got to have somebody in your corner. You got to have people cheering you on, bandaging you up, giving you some water, saying, now you get back in there, and now you start throwing punches. Don't take those punches anymore. You start throwing some yourself. And where that metaphor falls short is that what really happens is those those faces of grace, those corner men, they get in the ring, and they start throwing punches right next to you. They start fighting and battling alongside you. You need somebody In your corner, Ecclesiastes 4.12, a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. So enough about boxing and wolves. Let's get to the Bible. There's two famous stories. I gave you two stories of isolation causing great falls. Now I want to give you two pictures of groups of friends Beautiful pictures of faces of grace. So Daniel chapter 3, a lot of you have heard, have heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hillsong just wrote a song about it, another in the fire, Love to sing it. Really amazing story. If you haven't heard it, here's the context. Uh, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are uh, captives. They are exiles in Babylon. They, they're from Israel. They worship the one true God, and they go get taken into Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, he creates this idol. And he commands everybody in the kingdom to bow down and worship this idol. But these three guys won't do it. And he's ruled that the punishment, if if somebody won't worship his idol, is that they will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Because he was a really cool guy. So it says, Daniel 3.19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And you're like, why are you stopping there? Let's get to the cool part where they go into the fire, but then there's a fourth figure in the fire, and the king Nebuchadnezzar sees it, and he's like, that looks like a son of God, and he protects them. And, and God intervenes in this moment, and these guys walk back, back out of the fire, right? That's what the story's about, that there was another in the fire. It's about God saving these three guys, these men of faith. Absolutely. But I just want to point out that while the story's about another in the fire, it's also about two others in the fire. Those three guys walked in together. They, they, I don't know if the story would look different had it just been one of them, But I know that they had the passion and the courage in each other to urge each other on. They said, no, no, no. We know who our God is. We don't worship something that man made. We worship him who made man. So we're not going into that, or we're going into that fire. We're not going to bow down to that idol. We're not going to listen to what this guy says because you're passionate about your faith in God. And you're passionate about your faith in God. We'll just walk right in together. It was about another in the fire, but it was also about two others in the fire. And that's what faces of grace do. They walk in. They walk through the fire with you. They stand by you. Their passion won't let yours burn out. And so we hear a story like that, and it's like supercharges us. Yeah, get me in the ring. I'll throw some punches. Let's go. But we're also broken. We're also human beings, and we don't always necessarily have that kind of faith or that kind of passion. So here's a different story illustrating some faces of grace. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are... Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Faces of grace will carry you to Jesus when you can't carry yourself. And this story is this beautiful depiction of this guy receiving healing because his friends came around him. And it may not, it may not sound like they're walking into a fire in the same way as the other story, but just know that in the society of that day, anyone with any form of disability was considered cursed by God, like by those Pharisees. And so these guys, these friends, they probably had already gotten trash-talked, gotten a lot of flack for being friends with this guy. But they believed something different about their God who said it was not right for man to be alone. They had rallied around him, and and he experienced healing that day. But, But so did they. Because if you look at that guy, he had not accepted isolation as his destiny. While everybody else was telling him, no, no, you got you to be cast away. You're cursed by God. He, he believed something different about his God. He had friends around him for a reason because he had faith that God did not want him to be alone. And they all experienced healing and freedom. And that day they met the face of grace. They got to meet him and everything changed because that's what Jesus does. That's this foundation of grace that he lays. Jesus was like the best picture of a friend, obviously, ever. He was known as the friend of sinners. Hey, Jesus, it's really funny to us how your friends pretend to be good people. Some of them don't even pretend. And Jesus had this amazing ability to just love people right where they were at while simultaneously pushing them forward into full life. Hey, woman caught in adultery, I love you right here, right now. I'm with you. Now it's time to leave that behind and, and walk into a new life. Hey, woman at the well, you've been in isolation for far too long. It's time you, you know who this God is. You have a vertical relationship and you start having some healthy, horizontal relationships again. It's not good for you to be alone. Hey, Peter, you probably think you just shot down any chance of our relationship continuing when you denied me, but what you don't know, even, even in those moments is that I have been molding you into a face grace. Now you go feed my sheep, you go lead my church. Faces of grace make you into a face of grace. And that's what Jesus did. He molded all these imperfect people into those faces and they went out into the world. And that has affected us here in Austin, Texas in 2020. We're telling those stories, starting with the face of grace. And I'm blessed and so thankful to have experienced this in my life personally. So I'll close with a story where where I saw a picture of this for me. Last time I was up here, I told you the story of when Stephanie and I had our first kiss, and I really, I know I left everybody on a big cliffhanger with our relationship. And you've been waiting eagerly to know what happened next. We did get married, like a year later, we got married. So, uh, and I know, one year, wow, that's really fast. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. And when you have the opportunity I had, you lock that down as quickly as you can. So you can sue me for that, but... We had our wedding, a beautiful September day in 2014, surrounded by friends and family. And uh, the ceremony was amazing. And before we knew it, we were making our way onto the dance floor for our first dance. Now, I had created this mashup song idea where the songs would cut into other songs and we would have all the dances that happen at a wedding reception like in a row. So like Steph and her grandpa were gonna dance and then me and my mom and then Steph's mom was gonna come out and my dad was gonna come out and all our friends then with bridal party would come out and dance. Had it all lined up and it started with Steph and I, just the two of us of course, dancing to a cover of a song called a Latch that a lot of you guys know. It's a beautiful song that we really love. And so we hadn't practiced at all. Never had a run through with this. That's an important detail for this story. So we start doing the... Kind of wedding dance thing. Wish somebody would come up with something better than that for all of us who don't really know what we're doing. And uh, we're kind of looking at each other. We're surrounded by friends and family and teary eyed aunts and moms and, and people that it's such a beautiful moment, right? And then the music starts skipping. The song literally starts skipping at our first dance at our wedding. So we kind of embrace it and do the robot a little bit. And people are looking like maybe this is part of the show. It wasn't. I was looking at the DJs like, this is the first dance at my wedding. I'm confident I could kill both of you, so you better figure this out. And then the song just completely stopped, just cut out. So we're in the middle of the dance floor at our wedding, the two of us, silence. Everyone's staring at us like, is the bride going to run out crying because this perfect moment's been ruined? She's looking at me like, do you have something up your sleeve? I'm looking at her like, yeah, of course I do. I didn't. I was panicking in my mind and then I heard a voice start singing the song. I look over at the head table and Doug is standing on his chair, singing the lyrics right where it cut out. He just started singing the song and then Ryan stands up, all those guys stand up and before we know it, all of our friends and family are singing the song and we're dancing to it. It was such a better memory than my mashup would have been. And a lot was going through my mind in that moment and some of this is probably thinking through it later but I looked over at those guys And I thought, they're doing exactly right now what they've always done for me. When the song cuts out, they figure out a way to keep going. When my life, when I hit a hiccup, when there's skips, when there's bumps, they they come alongside me and they make a better story out of it. They pick me up when I don't have a clue what to do. That's who they've been. Carrying me for all these years, they keep the music going when the song So laughing about the fact that we were going to be some guys that would never let the Christian guys keep us down and became Christian guys who were lifting each other up. And I'm so thankful that, that those guys made me into the person I could be at that wedding dancing with Stephanie because I promise you, had it not been for that group, we would have never got married. She wouldn't have married me pre that group. can promise you that. They made me into a man because they loved me. Enough right in the moment, they love me with the grace of God, but the grace of God propels you that you can't stay the same if you truly experience and understand the grace of God. You cannot stay the same. And they wouldn't let me. They called more out of me. They believed more about me than I believed about myself. And because of them, I actually started to believe, you know what, maybe I could be a face of grace for other people. Maybe I could reflect the grace of Jesus to people in my life, as broken and imperfect as I am. And so we as a church, we're talking about when we go out of this place, 167, let's go be faces of grace in this city and we're gonna do it. But it's really hard to do if you don't have a couple of those around you first. You might be running on fumes. You need some faces of grace rallying around you so then you can go to the people that you love that don't know Jesus. This isn't about cutting out the people that don't live exactly like you. This isn't about cutting out non-Christian people from your life, you're here for them. You exist here right now in this moment to be a face of grace to them, but in order to be one, you've got to have some around you. And so your takeaway, I was sitting with a couple guys a few years after the wedding, and I was sharing about how impactful my group has been in my life. And this guy, Scott, a friend of mine, he's got a couple decades on me, was telling the group about his crew of guys that meet weekly and have been for decades and how transformative it's been for his life when when they committed and said, we're gonna get in each other's lives and we're gonna gonna stand on the grace of Jesus and we're gonna be men who fight alongside each other. And so this other guy in the group looks at him, he's like, Scott, that's really great. I'm really happy for you. I have a wife, I've got three kids, I work more than full-time. How do you have that? And Scott said something so profound, he just looked right at the guy and he goes, oh, you just do it. Just do it. Great slogan, great tagline. Somebody should take that. Just do it. You just sign up. You just make the drive. I'm wearing Nikes right now. You make the drive. That was subliminal so that you guys, uh, you see it all connect. You just sign up. You just show up. You keep showing up. When there's a, a night that you don't really like in your group, you just go back the next week. You start loving the people even that are different than you, even that have different opinions than you you listen to their stories, you get to know them and find out why maybe they're broken in the way they are. You become a face of grace. You just, you just do it. You just get in community. You just find family. That's your decision to make. Nobody can make you do that. And I hope and pray for anybody in this room who desperately needs that, who desperately feels alone right now, that 11 years from now, you'll look back and say, that day, everything changed for me. I can look back and see that that's when God surrounded me with some faces of grace and started molding me into one. Stand on the foundation of the grace of Jesus and go take it to this city, but don't do it alone.